0: Welcome back everybody to the Big Cat People series of podcasts and in the first series we've called it Our Story, Becoming the Big Cat People and this is episode 4 and it's called Wild Kingdom I'd like to just quickly go back a step or two to 1977, the year that I first arrived in the Maasai Mara to live at Mara River Camp. And it was January. And not long afterwards, two events happened which were to have a significant impact on life in the Mara and the position of the Maasai Mara in Kenya's tourism industry. And also in conservation, because early in 1977, Kenya announced a ban on all trophy hunting. In fact, on all hunting. And they extended that ban to reach out to also ban the sale of all wildlife products in Kenya. That happened a little while after, but it was all under the same hat. Basically, Kenya was saying, no more consumptive use of wildlife. In other words, we're not going to eat it, we're not going to kill it for sport, and we're not going to kill it to create curios, items which could be body parts of animals, which could be sold into the curio shops, which had been flourishing in Kenya. And by 1977, regardless of the real reasons as to why Kenya decided to ban trophy hunting, there was no question that the hunting industry in East Africa had fallen into disrepute. Yes, there were some good ethical hunters, hunters who obeyed the rules and regulations, hunters who stuck to the quota system. Because for every animal, whether it was a lion, leopard, buffalo, rhino, whatever kind of animal it was that people were going out to kill for sport, for pleasure, there were quotas to try and limit the number of animals to a sustainable level. And so that was being abused between the hunters and government officials, people in the administration, people in the wildlife services, people in the Ministry of Tourism and Wildlife. And it meant that ultimately more animals of certain species were being killed than they should have been. Now, there were quite a lot of people in the conservation movement who said, you know, really, it's not the trophy hunting industry that is the real issue. It's poaching. It's the killing, the illegal killing of wildlife in Kenya. And there was a lot of it going on. Our elephant population, our rhino population were decimated by... The fact that poaching, it it just was an everyday happening in and outside of protected areas. And that included in the Maasai Mara. And so when trophy hunting was banned, some people questioned, was that really going to put an end to the issue of the illegal killing of wildlife? And there is no question that it didn't. But as far as the Mara was concerned, it did mean... That from 1977 onwards, that there wasn't illegal killing of lions, for instance, in the Mara, as there had been. We talked about Black Mane, one of those three Marsh Pride males that I first met through Joseph Rotich in 1977, who was killed illegally inside the reserve, of leopards being warned not to mention to officials, rangers, wardens in the Mara who were working, some of them, not all of them, working in cahoots with the system which was so out of control. So hunting was banned, and that meant that the company, Zimmerman's, the taxidermy company, which used to process the proceeds of the hunts, the, the lion heads, the elephants, every body part used in some form or other, was also supplying the products which were being sold in the courier shops. And when they banned trophy hunting and banned the sale of wildlife products, two to three hundred shops, which had proliferated, perhaps due to a lot of animals that were being poached and then moved through the system, created, changed into these items that tourists on the streets would buy. That was shut down literally overnight, two to three hundred Courier shops went out of business. And so we breathed a sigh of relief, inasmuch as we knew that for the moment at least it seemed that our lion population could recover. We would be seeing those beautiful, big, black maned lions again. They weren't at risk, they were being going to be properly protected. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said about the rhino, which went into serious decline. They were worth so much a kilo of rhino horn more valuable than the price of gold. And the illegal trade in wildlife is one of the top four big, you know, awful trades, trafficking of people, arms, drugs, and wildlife. And people estimate that today could be 10-20 billion dollars a year industry and it's all caught up with the same cartels because it involves corrupting officials whether it's in customs immigration import export ports whatever it might be at that level it's a mafia and it's run organized crime and it's a very very dangerous area to stick your nose into believe me. So, the second thing that happened in 1977 was that Julius Nyerere, highly respected father of African socialism, president, first president of independent Tanganyika, Tanzania, then called where Angie's dad had been employed, where Angie grew up in Tanzania Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Julius Nereri, decided he was going to close the border with Kenya. And he shut it overnight at some point in 1977. And that ground to a halt. In fact, it just literally stopped it in its tracks. The extraordinarily successful safari business, which was outfitted out of Nairobi. Kenya dominated the tourism sector in East Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya. Kenya was king. Nairobi was the capital of safari. And many tour operators in Kenya would take their guests into Tanzania by road in Kenya vehicles with Kenya guides, paying Kenya shillings, and flying in Kenya aircraft to see the wonders of Lake Manyara, Ngorongora, Serengeti, like I'd seen coming overland twice, going down and then coming back with Colin to see Tanzania has the most extraordinary wildlife areas. And so Julius Nereri felt that Kenya was really a predator on Tanzania's tourism product. And there was also a big issue about the East African community and East African airways. And Tanzania basically felt shortchanged. And they had some reason to feel that their nose was out of joint, that they weren't getting a fair crack of the whip, certainly as far as the tourism sector was concerned because Kenya dominated Tanzania's tourism product and a lot of the money earned in foreign exchange did not come into Tanzania. The fees were paid in local currency and a lot of the tour operators made huge profits in foreign currency, which was often channeled out of the country or never came into the country into the country at source, Kenya or Tanzania. And so with that border closure, the Mara, which many people had literally thought of, certainly as an overlander or somebody who was on the milk train, what we used to call the milk train. So for safaris in the 70s, a lot of times you'd start in Nairobi, you'd do a quick route, you'd do a quick visit to Amboseli at the foothills of Kilimanjaro. And then you'd go to into Tanzania through the Namanga border, you'd go to Arusha, you'd overnight there, and then you'd head to Lake Manyara, amazing lions climbing trees, elephants, all those extraordinary water birds in the lake, and then you'd go to Ngorongora crater, the seventh wonder of the world, maybe the sixth wonder of the world, who knows but an extraordinary an old caldera. Uh, formerly erupted volcano, a crater. Like the Garden of Eden, you would head down the rocky track down into the bottom of the crater to see black maned lions, black rhinos, huge elephant bulls. Wonderful, extraordinary place, masses of spotted hyenas. And then from there, you would head off to the Serengeti, the great Serengeti, named by the Maasai, Serengeti the land that runs on forever, land of endless space. And from there, you would go by road across the border at Bolagonja, Tanzania side, into Kenya at the Sand River Gate, into the Masai Mara. But you would just overnight, by that time, you'd seen black-maned lions, you'd seen rhino, you'd seen elephants, cheetahs, leopards, and it would be as you then headed after an overnight in the Masai Mara back to Nairobi via Lake Nakuru. And the wonder of the greatest bird of spectacle on earth is how Roger Tory peterson described it in the 1960s. The sight of some part of two million lesser and greater flamingos in the Soda Lakes in East Africa, but particularly Lake Nakuru in those days. And to the north of it, Lake Begore to the south of it, Lake Natron in Tanzania. But you would pass through the Mara on your way back to Nairobi. And it would be, what was where was that place we overnighted there? Well, yes, we, we did see lions, but we didn't spend much time. We'd seen so much already. We were a bit leg-weary by then. Shot an awful lot of Kodachrome film and video and ready to say, Kwaheri, goodbye to our trip, and heading back to Nairobi like we'd done when we came overland. And so the Mara was almost like an afterthought. But when the border closed, and it didn't open again till 1983, and it had a devastating effect on tourism in Tanzania, numbers just dwindled to a trickle. Poaching went out of the roof. Elephants and rhino slaughtered. Because there wasn't the revenue to pay the park services, to pay the rangers, to pay for the vehicles and the upkeep. And so when Richard Leakey and Alan Root and Root and Leakey Safaris decided to put up a seasonal camp that year, 1976, it first went up. Then when the border closed, 1977, and I was down there, it was suddenly like everybody wanted to come to the Mara because they knew that it was an amazing place. It was just a bit redundant if you'd been to all those places in Tanzania that you could no longer go to so you could find everything in the Mara. And so literally it became the jewel in the crown of the Kenya tourism industry from that point onwards. And from just a handful of camps, governor's camp, first camp, 1971, 72, first camp into the Mara, there was a lodge, Kikarok which we'd pass through or come and eaten a little bit of food and had a shower, camped at the campsite there. And there were very few facilities, a couple of hunting camps outside the reserve. But it meant that all of a sudden the focus was on the Mara. And rightly so. It's an extraordinary place. But now everybody wanted to go there. And of course, people saw opportunity. Very quickly, people started to put up tented camps, lodges. And the place really took off. And so... When I think about myself, when I first came up to Kenya, I was very aware of the fact that as much as people were friendly, just as people had been friendly, the Irish to me at university in Belfast, when I came to Kenya, I was a little bit of an outsider. I wasn't a Kenya cowboy. I wasn't one of those brought up, raised, schooled in Kenya, you know, grown up on safari or on a farm somewhere. But I was. I was a little bit more serious and I had that degree and people often say to me, you know, your degree in zoology did it. Was it worth having? You better believe it. It gave me the confidence to believe that I had the ability to do anything. It gave me the confidence to know and the discipline, self-discipline to knuckle down and work hard to actually make my dreams come true because I was going to be persistent in pursuing it. And so... When I was applying for that job through Jock at Mara River Camp, I think he understood that I was serious about this. I wasn't going to suddenly bunk off because there was a party at Governor's Camp or over on the other side of the Mara or that there was a chance to go down to the coast because that was part of living in Kenya. Go on safari and go to the coast. The ocean, those white coral beaches... Just have a wonderful time in that beautiful Indian Ocean, the warm waters, and mix it up with safaris. That was both pleasure and what people wanted to do initially, youngsters, to get a job doing that kind of thing. But then they would, after a few weeks, maybe, you know, get people would seduce them to go and do something else to not apply themselves. And that wasn't me. I was totally dedicated to making sure I did my job. I kept an eye on the camp, kept the guests happy sold them some of my prints and drawings, took them out on safari, taught them a little bit as they got to know more about photography. And so in a sense, I, I was giving good value and I could be relied on, relied on, reliability, so important, be your word, do what you say you're going to do. And I'd always loved rugby. And so in the rainy season, when things pretty much closed down at my River Camp, I would go up to Nairobi and I would play rugby for Impala and eventually on a Kenya representative team, which toured Zambia. And we won the Roan Antelope Championship in 1978. And, and I think it gave me a bit of credibility. I wasn't just this Brit, you know, who nobody knew from school and nobody knew about their background and, you know, who is he really? And, and it gave me some credibility. Plus, I was in the safari business. I could draw. I was an artist. I had prints to sell. So those initial prints that Howard Swan sent up to me, of the 1,000 prints, I asked him to, why don't you give me 200? Instead of me waiting for the sale or return or the royalty system to kick in for you to sell them, and when you do, give me my 10%, why don't you give me 200 sets of those 1,000 sets of prints? And I could then trade them into the galleries in Nairobi, and there was a huge market at that point. Tourists used to come into town, into Nairobi, looking for carvings initially for those elephant hair bracelets, for ivory carvings, for, you know, all those keepsakes they wanted to take back to remind themselves of their trip. Well, that went out of the window when the courier shops were closed down. But wildlife art and wildlife prints by David Shepherd, Robert Bateman, sculptors by Rob Glenn, Jonathan Kenworthy... Those were hot items and pen and ink drawings, pen and ink prints were so easy for me to print myself. So I I made friends with a paper producer, a paper manufacturer, importer and a printer. And then I started printing my own sets of prints, having sold the 200 that I got from Howard Swan, made them a signed edition of 200, sold them at 50% reduction on the retail price into the galleries and sold them privately as well. And I was able to help afford my upkeep and eventually after two or three years of living at my river camp i think it was probably around 1979 i was able to buy my first land cruiser freedom my own vehicle had it customized with roof hatches and table mounts on the sides to photograph to rest my cameras on and when there was an opportunity to take people out and help them with their photography and so i was gathering as i said when i would go out every day whether it was looking for lions or whatever it was i was getting to know the lions the marsh pride and other prides of lions the paradise pride to the south the metiembeeli pride to the east the gorge pride to the north and i was knowing and learning them like notch that female i knew them as individuals to look at and because i'd spent so much time with them but i also knew that whisker spot pattern that judith Rood and I, And Pennyquick had discovered when watching lions in Nairobi National Park, every lion has a fingerprint because one tawny hide looks like another. But every lion's muzzle, those whisker spot spot patterns photographed from left and right and from the front, it's as individual as a fingerprint in a human being. It doesn't change that pattern of spots from the time a cub is born until it dies. And it might. Well, you might think you know this lion. It's only got one eye. It's got half a tail. I even saw a three-legged lion one time surviving for a while. But that's not enough. Because years later, you might see a lion. It's got one eye missing, but it's not the same lion. That happens. Physical characteristics. So, whisker spot patterns. Yes, you also record the notches in the ears which change over time any kind of particular scarring or whatever, teeth wear, that'll help you to a degree, but of course it's changing over the lion's life. The colour, the pattern of the nose, going pink, pink for up to three years and then getting gradually blocked in to become black with black spots, which takes, you're about halfway through a pink nose to a black nose by the time you're about six years old, five, six years old. And so... In 1979, I had a pivotal moment because I met somebody called Brian Jackman. He was a well-established journalist with the Sunday Times, wonderful writer, travel writer, passionate about conservation, a great naturalist. And I met Brian, he came out to do an article on the Mara for Wildlife Magazine. And having done so, a publisher, George Allen Nonwin, wrote to him and they'd published a book by... lady who would become a friend of mine and her husband Kay Turner whose husband, Miles Turner, was the game warden in the Serengeti. Eventually he came up to the Mara and lived at Kitchwatembo, a camp which I moved to from Mara River Camp at some point, 1981. And Brian was contacted after his article appeared by Alan and Unwin saying, is there anybody who might be able to write a book like Kay Turner has done, Serengeti Home, about the Mara? So he wrote to me. He said, look, you know, I thought about you straight away. He said, but if by any chance you don't feel like writing 60,000 words, then I'm happy to work with you on the words and we can use your drawings and photographs to illustrate the book. And that's how the book, The Martial arts came about. It was published in 1982. And I had already, so 1978, there was a local wildlife magazine, the East African Wildlife Society's magazine, which today is called Swara, which is the Swahili word for antelope. It was called Africana. And in 1978, a year after I had been in the Mara, living in the Mara, I had a drawing of three lions, the Marsh Pride, and a photograph of that three-legged lion. It was a young subadult male who had lost a leg probably when it was very young maybe to a hyena um, you know it could have been a fight with other lions but who knows what had happened but this lion had remarkably managed to survive it didn't live that much longer way too competitive by the time it's becoming an adult male lion it's tough enough just making your mark and not getting yourself killed in the bruising battles from nomad to pride male and anyway i sent these to the drawings and the um the photograph to david keith jones who was the editor at that time of Suara magazine and he published them my first publication of those i'd already sold drawings because i'd mentioned i'd had uh, a drawing you know, way back in Botswana in those early days at the National Museum through Alec Campbell, highly commended in that art competition. And then I'd sold various originals and I was now selling my prints and I was beginning to be able to, you know, support myself a little bit and run a vehicle of my own, still at Myra River Camp. And from having those pictures published and then with the Marshlands in the offing, I would eventually be able to actually make more of my photographs because initially it was all about my drawings. I was taking photographs, black and white, couldn't afford colour film, to draw from as my records. And then over time, as I had my own vehicle, I started to take people out on safari myself at times. And one of them was a, an ex-National Geographic photographer called David Goodneau, extraordinary character. And I'd take him on safari and he'd tip me with Kodachrome 64 that was the color transparency film that I was now using it's the benchmark in those days for wildlife photographers beautiful film rendered lovely natural colors and when Dave would be happy with his safari afterwards he'd maybe leave me you know 20 30 rolls which was like gold of Kodachrome film and in time he also would bring in cameras and lenses which I would pay him for but he'd he'd bring them into the country for me and at times when i was going up to nairobi i had the use of uh, a room with an old man an extraordinary old man called colonel terence connor he was a war veteran veteran he was uh, grew up in india he was the son i think of a tea planter and he fought with distinction in the burma campaign and when i met him i met him through rugby because he was a great supporter of um the rugby club and he said to me look any time you're up in nairobi you need a room you want to stash your, your your kit here and he'd after he'd retired from the army on the settler scheme he'd had the option of farming in coffee in Tanzania where Andrew grew up uh, near to the ngorongoro crater had a beautiful farm and he had eventually retired. You couldn't call it retired. Colonel Connor didn't retire till he died. And by that time he was almost a hundred, but this was the most extraordinary man. And, and he was wonderfully generous to me and supportive and just, just, you know, courage. He was wonderful to the people who worked for him incredibly generous he was brave. I mean, you know, in his 90s, he'd wade into a street scene in Nairobi when the word Mwevi goes up, which means thief, uh, Mwezi. that goes up. If that's called out on the streets, then all hell's going to break loose because somebody's stolen something and they could well get beaten to death. That was certainly the way it was in the old days. And Colonel Connor would have nothing, none of it. He believed in fair play, whether it was sport, whether it was life. He'd be wading in there with his stick, with his wobbly old knees and his baggy old white pants, just determined, if this person has done something wrong, let the law take its course, not mob violence. Extraordinary man. Stoicism, courage, bravery. And he'd tell you, look, you think I feel like getting up in the morning? I can barely bend my legs. No, I don't. I can't even find my glasses. I'm not even sure where I am at times, but I'm not going to give up. He was like an old lion, a warrior. That spirit, it's not over till you're dead. And so I met him. As I say, I would take people on safari from time to time. And I met up with some lovely people who ran a safari company called Battler Safaris. And Peter Davy ran Battler Safaris. And he introduced me to the world of picture agencies, a way in which you could with your images and i was getting some beautiful images now in the Mara. i didn't know that much about photography but i had an eye for competition and he introduced me to the frank lane agency and he'd seen some pictures that I'd taken of a lion kill and whatever you know he also was involved putting images through to um suara magazine or Africana, as i say it was in those days and he said look you can make some money with this And it was a 50-50 deal, 50% on royalties earned by the company, Franklin Agency, for any images that were published. And you got 50% of whatever they earned. And Peter, being a wily old business, and he said, look, I'm going to have to tell you, but I'm going to take some of that too. Well, you know, what do you say? This is how business works. So, um, he introduced me to that. And in fact, in the 80s and 90s, we would see from when when the Martial arts was published to great acclaim. So um, the book was sold to Elm Tree Books. It was published in 1982. And they, they made a deal. So we had an agent or Brian Jackman through his uh, contacts as a journalist had already had an agent himself, Mike Shore at Curtis Brown. And he did the deal with Elm Tree Books George Allen and Unwin, they lost out because they didn't have the money to put up as much as, uh, you know, as the bids came in, Elm Tree won out. Uh, And the book was a huge success. It was, um, the book club took 10,000 copies. There was a US edition. There was a paperback. Sunday Times Magazine put it on the cover. Now you've got to be a celebrity to be on the cover. You've got to be a footballer or a, a film star. But in those days, wildlife was front door so if you went into a bookshop as i did when i visited london natural history was in the front window and so was the marshlands i remember one time when the marshlands came out going in saying you know how's it going?" oh it's doing really well sir and i'd go and i'd look at the shelves and there'd be you know 10 copies on the the uh, on the shelf and maybe a pile on the front table for a while with a sign about you know a picture publicizing the marsh pride and then i'd come back in later and i'd go and i'd look in the um, the shelf and I'd say oh no my goodness there's a sale slowing down but there's still only 10 copies there and he sort of patted me on the head and said don't worry so we constantly top up the shelves so as there's always full shelves of your book and Brian's book and so at that point now with some so in the Marsh Pride in the Marsh lines, there was my pen and ink drawings which everybody had loved Uh, as chapter openers. And then there was my colour pictures. And I have to say, in the early days, people were much more impressed with my drawings. They said, that's what makes you different. There's loads of people taking photographs out there. It's the drawings. And I said, yes, but I'd really like to see those images, my photographs published too. Well, fortunately, I got my way. And then a company called Seafot Picture Libraries, who were underwater specialists. Gillian Lithgow and her husband, John Lithgow, had started with another lady from uh, Kenya, had started an underwater film agency, a a picture agency. So in other words, where, as I've said, like Frank Lane, now I'm with CFOT, um, they took your images and they then sold them. It was before websites in those days. But what there was were things called stock directories. So they would publish something like a telephone directory, but it would just have thumbnail pictures in it. And it would go out to the best of the advertising agencies. And that would be a quick way for them to identify, okay, we need a picture of a running cheetah. Okay, fine. Go to the alphabet in the stock directory. Go to C, cheetah, cheetah running. There we go. cfot has got a beautiful picture. Jonathan Scott looks good. And that's how the business went. And fortunately, because they were just beginning to move out of purely underwater photography to wildlife photography, loved the pictures from the marshland, saw that there was some, you know, there was good business here and they offered me a preferential deal. I would get 60% of the profit and they'd keep 40. Well, guess what? Many years later, so the 1980s and 90s was the heyday of the specialist image libraries and the stock directories. But then after the 80s and into the 90s, when we could earn a pension from those earnings, we moved into the era of the giant, the giants of the picture, of the imaging industry, Getty and Corbis. And they bought up the specialist libraries and they now deal in hundreds of millions of images, images these days to a penny. The value for a single image, I mean, barely worth talking about. And Getty changed the ballpark. So now we're into the digital era. And instead of it being 60-40 to me, It was now 30, 70 to myself and Angie. We would get 30% of the profit of the sales and they would keep 70. Well, there you go. The rationale was bigger mileage in terms of bigger distribution, a bigger window into the world, higher sales, but less images actually. Well, let's put it this way. It was they got your images round to a larger marketplace, and so more of your images sold, but the revenue from each image was less. So we survived because, Angie and myself, and this is moving forward a little bit and I'm coming back, because of TV, radio, photographs, lectures, art, prints, We kept our fingers in as many pies as we could. So when the stock directory business and the specialist picture libraries, you know, after the great days of the 80s and 90s, when that began to dwindle, we had a plan B. Now, when The Martial Arts was published, we were delighted because Virginia McKenna, of all people, the wonderful lady, one of the nicest people I've ever met, reminds me of my darling Angie. She read The Marshlands on Radio 4. So it was serialized. So it really, really, you know, people had said to us before it was published, but what are you going to tell us that Born Free hasn't already? What Joy and George Adamson? But if there's one lesson to give you from this, don't let anybody tell you. But we've seen or heard that before. Put your mark on it. Do it with your imagination, with your talents. There will always be room for another book or film on Lions. Believe me. So... With the launch of The Martial Lions, we had gone through Brian to the BBC through a friend of his, a wonderful cameraman called Hugh Hugh Miles. And just before The Martial Lions was due to come out, we managed to land two television deals, one with Julian Pettifer for a series called Nature Watch, where he came and spent time with me and The Martial Lions and interviewed me about my passion, the lions, my drawings, my life. And then there was a wildlife on one, which was created by the BBC and narrated by the wonderful David Attenborough, who would become a friend in time. And I had the privilege of taking David around on a game drive when he came to do the, or prior to doing the narration for Ambush at Masai Mar, it was called. And I remember taking him out and him seeing lots of other vehicles, and we would be watching the Marshlands, and there'd be another five, ten vehicles, and guess what it would be now? Twenty, thirty vehicles. And he just said to me, How do you cope with? all these cars, with all this noise, with all these people. And I said, David, I just simply blank them out. This is my love. This is my life. My eyes are on those lines, not what anybody else is doing. I don't care. And I think he thought, you know, well, good on you and good luck for the future. And let's see how that turns out. But for me, it worked. But at the time that we were publishing the marshlands. And one of the reasons why I said to Brian very quickly, yes, you do the words with my input and I'll write up the diary and, you know, you then embellish it with your beautiful prose. But there was a, another couple, or rather a couple, Jan Artus Patron and his lovely wife Anne, a French couple who had come to fly balloons in the Maasai Mara at Governor's Camp. They, bil- they, bil- they built the balloon house. And he was passionate about photography and they were following the lions. He got support from Canon. He had some inside track there, had some, all the lenses I would have loved, but I was only gradually acquiring. So he got sponsorship from Canon and he was doing a book on the very same lands, the arts that I was, and the Paradise Pride to the South as well. And after he would do his balloon flight each morning, he would then jump in his car and he would go out to look for the lands, or on his days off, he'd be out there the same time as I was. So that was his second career as such. And he was due to publish a book. So that was one reason why we wanted to get our book out as quickly as we could. And Anne and Jan produced a beautiful book. And Jan went on to become the man of... Air from Above. So The Earth from Above, his landmark book to celebrate the year 2000, the dawn of the new millennium, um, Earth from Above, it sold 3 million copies. So he went on to become a very versatile photographer. He could use lighting, he could shoot fashion, he'd already shot the Dakar rally. Uh, He was brave, he was, you know, imaginative, he was fearless, and, and he just reaped the rewards of what he did and he went on to photograph farm animals in France and uh, Venice and then all kinds of places from above and then that culmination in that earth from above that extraordinary book with that heart-shaped island on the front and and remains a great friend to this day a wonderful ambassador for the environment on the UN and he's gone on to make landmark um, cinema and movie films Uh, such as human and woman and, you know, you you look his name up, Jan Artus Patron. So when we camped with uh, Hugh Miles and Brian Jackman for the making of ambush at Masai Mara, we used Crocodile Camp. And there was one occasion when we were in camp and we heard the roaring of lions. And then we heard somebody shouting out just as we came into camp. So we're on foot, we've gone out of the car, And then we came face to face with Makubwa, one of the three Marsh Pride Males, males. And he was just standing there and he just basically totally ignored us. He was in his territory. We were just, you know, interlopers, visitors. And then we heard this squeaky little voice from higher up. And it was the chef who, on seeing this lion walking towards camp, had just done what he felt was the most sensible thing. He'd legged it up into the tree. And now we were looking at this magnificent male and just, you know, full of awe for the wonders of nature. I was at this stage beginning to take people on safari, had my own vehicle, selling my prints, got cameras and lenses, and was beginning to become known as that bloke in the Masai Mara who follows the lions. He knows the big cats. And so I was seen as a resource by the filmmakers by the people such as the BBC, Central Television, Julian Pettifer and and Nature Watch, National Geographic, and also Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I met a couple called Warren and Ginny Garst, lovely American couple. He was a zoologist, she was an academic. They were a team. So I was, again, just like June and Tim Levisage in the Okavango. I was beginning to realize that apart from all the wonderful short-term relationships I had, that it was possible to have a relationship, a long-term relationship, if you met the love of your life, the person of your dreams, who also wanted to spend time in the field, in the bush. That was that was always the compromise. How was that going to work out? Well, I had examples of people who made it happen, and Ginny and um, Warren were one of them. So they filmed for Wild Kingdom. And that series started in... Um, I think it was about 1961, I'm just going to check. Yeah, actually it's 1963, I think it was. Um, so in the early days in America, Wild Kingdom, sponsored by the insurance company company Mutual of Omaha, um, became a landmark series um, on television in America. And it became syndicated, it ran for 25 years. It was one of the most popular series ever outside of a news program. And it was hosted by Marlon Perkins, who had been the director of New York Zoo and St. Louis Zoo and uh, and a zoologist, somebody who knew what he was doing. Um, Somebody who you would notice, he had a a thin pencil, thin moustache, silver hair, just very neatly combed, immaculate in a suit. And he would stand in the studio and he would introduce Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And then they'd have a couple of young, fit people like Jim Fowler in those days and Stan Brock, um, who would be out there, you know, wrestling the wildlife and helping rescue it and doing whatever it was that Wild Kingdom was showing. And it was one of the pivotal, one of the most influential movers in terms of getting American audiences, because it was primarily an American audience, um, interested in wildlife, interested in conservation, interested in protecting the wildlife in what the rangers and the conservationists were doing to try and preserve the last of wild Africa or wild Asia, wherever it might be, wild America. And so um, I met Marlon Perkins and Warren and Ginny because Marlon and Carol would come out on an invitation-only safari with a company called Battler Safaris, who I did some work with, like I mentioned, with Peter Davey. And I would go on an East Africa safari, Kenya, Tanzania with them. And I took, I was one of the guides with um, Nigel Dundas, Joe Cheffings, Peter Davey, who took Carol and Marlin and their invited guests on safari. And I made the terrible mistake one time of, we were at Lake Nakuru. And later, Carol was giving voice to some information about it and she talked about the flamingos and i can't remember whether she called them lesser flamingos or greater flamingos whatever it was and i corrected her never ever ever do that to your guests or to your host i was reminded very quickly jonathan that is not no don't ever do that if you've got something to tell me tell me later isn't that a life lesson like in your relationship you want to be critical don't do it in front of other people keep the bad stuff for privacy be polite, be generous. Anyway, I learned. So Warren and Ginny Gass were the camera people who would go and I would give them information about where the lions, lepers, or cheetahs were. I caught Marlin's attention. I think initially he would rather have been guided by some of the other people because I didn't think he thought I really knew my stuff, but actually I did. But he just, because I was younger than everybody else, he thought I must be less experienced and less to offer. But he saw that I had. So at some point they said, you know what? Don Meyer Productions, um, they're looking for people, you know, Marlon's getting older, Jim's going to need, Jim Fowler's going to need somebody as a co-host, and we think that you could do it. They'd seen some stuff that I'd done with the BBC and, you know, on the promos and the promotional or the TV work that we'd done around the marshlands. So they said, let's do a a, a film test for you. And it was going to be up in Joe Cheffing's garden, up in, not far from where we live, in Langata, in Nairobi. And I stood there. Uh, You know, in front of the rose bushes and I did a piece to camera and the word came back, you know what? Not very sexy. (laughs) Fortunately, they saw some other stuff I did and they thought, you know what? He doesn't look too bad and he knows what he's talking about if he sticks to the wildlife. And let's give him a try. So I went with Warren and Ginny for my first Wild Kingdom episode to Ethiopia Wally or Ibex, Lama Gars, the Bearded Vulture, Gelada Baboons, the Bleeding Heart Baboons. Oh, it was amazing. And they would have cue cards, so they'd hold up a piece of paper so as I knew what I was saying, because it was very scripted in those days. It wasn't like Big Cat Diary, where it was all off the cuff and actuality and in the moment. It was very much, this is what we want you to say. And you would be basically there to, you know, try and look good on camera, to give it a human element. And then intro... Mid-program and outro tell us something to wrap it up or to open it up. Fortunately, in those days, sound was, well, it can be an issue at any time. But they would do replacement sound because often the sync sound, we're in the Simeon Mountains up on a cliff with winds blowing to hell. They can't get your microphone to, you know, blank out all the wind. So I would then go to North Michigan Avenue. Imagine this, this young bloke. Belly got a pair of shoes, one pair of shorts, no suit, going to go to North Michigan Avenue to do replacement narration, replacement sound to narrate the series that we'd filmed. I mean, just imagine, this was like, you know, five-star hotel, wined and dined. And I did say to, you know, the people who were crafting the shows, I would say, Pina, but couldn't we do a little bit better in some of the script, you know, a bit more information. And Don would just chat me on the shoulder and he'd say, listen, you've got to learn this. He said, we've been doing this a long time. So basically don't tell your grandmother how to cook eggs or whatever it is, bake bread. Um, And, and always think of this, the moment when you think you've got something important to say, probably the audience who's listening to you has probably gone up and gone to get a beer from the fridge. They're not even listening. So, bite-sized, sweet-sized sound bites, and keep it simple. Anyway, I was hoping that we could get more content and more information in there. And so now I was then going to be doing shows in Zimbabwe, in Namibia, you know, all across Africa. And it was extraordinarily exciting. Suddenly, I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild. I'm getting residuals. In other words, I get paid my fee for the Film, And then every time it's re I get a diminishing royalty because I was part of the performance. Try getting that now from the BBC. You're not going to manage. Those days have gone. So it was extraordinary. It was so exciting to be doing this. But the only problem was a lot of the stuff was faked. A lot of the stuff was rigged. And they tried to keep the lid on that. But actually, that was the way a lot of wildlife, television programs, cinema programs, anything involving animals, wild or domestic, a lot of it was set up. Because then you could control the situation. Well, how do you do that with wildlife? Well, I can tell you how you do it. You go to people who have game ranches or have animals in captivity or semi-captivity or in areas where you can control what's going on. And that's what Wild Kingdom did, whether it was going to Zimbabwe um, to the Lion and Cheetah Park, or whether it was going to Mount Etjo in Namibia with Jan Olofsky, a famous and very competent and skilled animal capture expert. But the difference was we might be producing an episode which was, you know, a conservation project, which probably had happened but hadn't been filmed at the time, to rescue the mountain zebra or to translocate some lions. The only difference was Wild Kingdom would be doing it set up to replicate what actually had happened and sometimes at great cost to the animals. So you try and capture some animals and somebody doesn't make it because it can get rough and ready. Or you're trying to noose a rhino with a rope and a vehicle, where already there were drugs which were created, where you could dart and immobilize the animal and do it very safely with no cost to the animal, hopefully, unless it died as a result of an overdose. So there were a lot of questions. And I very quickly realized, my God, as much as Warren and Ginny and the programs they were making in Africa in the wild, such as the one we did in Ethiopia, filming wild animals and talking about it, when it got to the other kind of programs, and of course, because Mutual of Omaha was an insurance agency, so they were offering insurance cover, they were a business. And so they wanted to be ensure that the money they paid and put into the programming was used to create high octane. Those pub moments of, did you see that the following day from the audience? When that croc nearly grabbed that guy's foot. When that lion went for that other lion, or that leopard killed that baboon. So I I didn't want that, and I can remember just saying, after a few of these things and realizing what this involved, saying to Warren and Ginny, I said, you know, what what you know, I can't do this. How did you get involved with this? What's it and he said, you know, this is what used to happen with Disney. I'd as a kid watched Perry, the story of the squirrels and, and the fire and the and the pine martins, and the danger, and the jeopardy. Well, half of it was contrived. Animals were sacrificed, and I was just getting, making a mark, watching wild animals like the lions. I just began work on what will be the feature of um, our fourth program, or five, sorry, our fifth episode, which is the leopard's tale. I was just, you know, I was making a mark, watching creatures in the wild, reporting on how they behave in the wild. I didn't, I didn't want somebody to come up to me after they'd seen. Something I'd done and say, oh, my goodness, that was extraordinary. That was amazing. When that, that scene with the crocs or the lions and have to just lie, pretend, no. And that's what I loved later in life and was so adamant about with Big Cat Diary was that this is real. This happened. You can believe us. It's not got changed in the edit to make it look different. This is the real deal. So I then said to Don, sorry, I, I can't do this. And he tried to change my mind. He said, look, you know, great, you're writing books. You'll meet, you know, you reach an audience of a few thousand. But he said, if you want to reach millions, he said, our program will do it. And it will be a great service to conservation. And I said, yeah, but at personal cost and cost to individual animals, I, I don't want to do that. So we parted ways amicably and that was, you know, a, a really sobering experience and, and a chance to say no to the money and and yes to following my truth. So there was another example of that actually, you know, in terms of ethics in in photography and wildlife photography. And we'll leave it to discuss at another point. But there was a famous still image of a leopard and and facing a baboon who's trying to run backwards or literally has turned to face the leopard and certain death, mouth-bared, both of them, and is about to be grabbed. And it was portrayed as being initially happening in the wild, and it wasn't, but we'll talk about that later. So that really was, you know, why I've called this episode Wild Kingdom, because I've always wanted whatever the publishers or the television production companies want, whatever image they want us to portray of wilderness and wildness and how things really are out there in the field where we're working. And we're just seeing this now, in fact, with our latest contribution to a BBC documentary, and it's called Lions, The Rise and Fall of the Marsh Pride. And it's a 90-minute BBC2 PBS documentary you'll be able to find it on iPlayer or you'll be able to catch up with it whether you had it on, you were able to see it at the time. So we're talking sort of August, September 2022 when that launched and and I'm sure there'll be repercussions for it because we, we had to, in a sense, tread on toes because we had to talk our truth and say what we felt because we care passionately about these wild places and about the wild creatures that we've been so privileged to watch. So let's make sure that Wild Kingdom really expresses the truth. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're enjoying the Big Cat People podcast, it would mean the world to us if you'd give us a follow on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this episode. And if you'd like to learn more from us, We've recently launched a brand new series of highly requested educational e-books with a range of topics including wildlife photography, world travel, safari and more. Our e-books are available for purchase exclusively from our website at bigcatpeople.com. We appreciate your support and we hope you join us again next week.